and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a hearing today before a federal judge in Washington, D.C., on a challenge by former President Trump, who is trying to prevent the National Archives from handing over 800 pages of White House documents requested by the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th. Joining us is Jacob Harbron, the editor of The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. He joins us to discuss his latest article at The National Interest, Is Trump Light a Winning Formula for the GOP? And his article at The New York Times, The Inexorable Rise of Angela Merkel. With the judge today appearing to want to expedite a decision in favor of the Biden administration to turn over the documents... We will assess Trump's next moves as he employs his familiar delaying tactics and the significance of the arrest and indictment today of Igor Danchenko, who provided most of the material in the controversial Steele dossier. Then we'll speak with Stephen Farnsworth, Professor and Director at the Center for Leadership and Media Studies at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia, where his research and teaching focuses on the mass media, the presidency, and Virginia politics. He's the author of a number of books, including Presidential Communication and Character, White House News Management from Clinton and Cable to Twitter and Trump, and Late Night with Trump, Political Humor, and the American Presidency, And we will discuss criticism coming from Democratic strategists like James Carville, who blamed his party's losses in Virginia and weak performance in other state elections on stupid wokeness. Then finally, we will speak with Dr. Ben Freeman, the director and founder of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy, where he works to expose how foreign governments are influencing U.S. public policy and elections. Previously, the National Security Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the Foreign Influence Database. He's the author of The Foreign Policy Auction, and we will discuss the Federal Election Commission's decision not to prevent foreign money from intervening in state ballot initiatives and referendums. And before we go to our first guest, while background briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jacob Halbrun, who is the editor of The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times, a senior editor at The New Republic, and his latest article at The National Interest is, Is Trump Light a Winning Formula for the GOP? And he has an article at The New York Times, The Inexorable Rise of Angela Merkel. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Halbrun. Thanks, Ian. So your article at the New York Times is is also a review of a book by Caddy Martin on on Angela Merkel, the Chancellor. Just to touch on that, because obviously there's a lot more to talk about what's happening in Washington today. 
But just to touch on that, I was very struck by the apparently recent exchange between Angela Merkel and Vice President Harris, where Angela Merkel, obviously (laughs) with a great deal of alarm, said, what is happening to America? I mean, is it that bad? People abroad are really worried about what's happening. I mean, they should be, because we all should be, particularly the possibility that we're going to become a one-party Republican state in a few years with voter suppression. But what did you take away from that remark? I think everyone is alarmed. And I think Cotty Martin's book, which is fabulous, by the way, is a look at a central figure who has been resisting the rising authoritarian tide and is now departing the world stage. And everyone is alarmed in Europe about what is taking place in the United States, particularly in Germany, because they experienced and still have memories of the Weimar Republic when you had political polarization and the rise of the radical right, which replaced mainstream conservatism. And so I think many people in Germany in particular worry that they are have a sense of deja vu about the United States. And I think that's what Merkel was driving at. And Merkel, incidentally, also grew up in the totalitarian East Germany. So she is no stranger to ideological delusions that can distort an entire society. So turning to activities in Washington today, where you are, Jacob, there is, of course, the judge today, Judge Tanya Chutkin, federal judge, Trump's lawyers argue that the National Archives shouldn't hand over the documents requested by the Select Committee investigating January the 6th. And she seemed to be pretty impatient with uh, Trump's lawyers. But what's your sense? Is there any opening for them? Because obviously Trump, his, his whole strategy is to delay, delay, delay. He's done that with his taxes. And we still haven't found out what went on with Deutsche Bank and who guaranteed all those loans that Trump got when nobody else would lend him any money. So he's been very successful in delay. And, and of course, you've got the possibility then that it'll go to the appeals court and then to the Supreme Court as he strings it out. But at this point, it seems like she's going to make a pretty quick decision. Is that your impression? I think Trump's going to lose this round. Um, He is the sorcerer's apprentice. He was a disciple of Roy Cohn, as I'm sure you know, and the the lawyer for Joseph McCarthy and or the assistant to Joseph McCarthy and then later a prominent New York lawyer. And Trump's modus operandi has always been to sue, sue and sue some more. And uh, so that's what he's doing here. He's always been able to escape accountability. Let's hope that this is one of the few times when he's unable to do that. Well, the judge at one point said, you know, (laughs) more or less said, well, this happened in the House's house. It was their house that was attacked on January the 6th. So surely they have every reason to want to know what happened. And I guess that's really the fundamental thing. I mean, how, how could you resist although obviously Trump is doing his best and the right-wing media like Fox is helping him uh, rewrite history about what happened on January the 6th, that it was a love fest and that all the violence can be attributed to Antifa. But 
in general, it would seem to me that the reality is so clear, we all saw it. Do you think that the Democrats and this select committee, it has two Republicans on it, can actually bring this whole reality back into focus of what really happened on January the 6th? Given the results of the election in Virginia and in New Jersey, I'm starting to become even more dubious that the American public has the attention span of a gnat. So, and unless they come up with some bombshell, uh, I think it's valuable for historians and I think it's a useful exercise, but I worry that the political impact will actually be a damp squib. So the possibility then of these documents, there's about 800 pages. I mean, interesting enough, the, the National Archives has, has said what they're about. And, the, and just on the surface, when you read the list of what is being requested from the National Archives, it sounds like they've got quite a roadmap. I'm sure, know, they, I'm sure they, yeah, I'm sure they do. But the problem with all of this is, of course, we already really know the story, don't we, that Trump was elated on January 6th. It wasn't as though he was disturbed that his followers were storming the Capitol. And he said to Mike Pence at one point, wouldn't you like to have this kind of power? And he's not, he's out for revenge. You know, the January 6th thing could just animate his followers even more. But you don't think that if... I mean, I don't understand, frankly, why the Democrats haven't already, or particularly the Department of Justice, haven't already arrested Bannon. And he's not languishing in that cell that they apparently have in the basement of the Capitol. I mean, what explains that? I mean, as long as you pussyfoot around these people, no wonder they they can rewrite history. We were talking about Germany before. I mean, we are seeing... I mean, I, I don't want to sound like you know, we're turning into Nazi Germany, but we are seeing this sort of dangerous passivity that took hold of liberals in in Germany in the 1920s. And, you know, it's always easier to do nothing. And Merrick Garland, does he actually have the backbone to prosecute any of this? It appears not. Well, the only explanation I've heard, which seems absolutely ridiculous, is that he's concerned, Garland is concerned, that he didn't want to turn these people into martyrs. Well, they're criminals. (laughs) Make the distinction, right? I mean, Trump's trying to turn these criminals into into martyrs. So, you know, do your job, for God's sake. I mean, Trump, you know, rolled into the presidency and just did whatever he wanted, basically, and Biden seems to be almost invisible. What's going on here? Well, the other story that's happening here is about the Steele dossier. And my understanding is the Steele dossier was basically written by this guy, Igor Denchenko, who is a Russian who's now a U.S. citizen, lives in Virginia. He worked at the Brookings Institution from 2005 to 2010, he was investigated during that period, apparently, by FBI counterintelligence that he could be a possible Russian agent or a former KGB person. Apparently that didn't go anywhere. But now this character Durham, the special counsel that former Attorney General Barr put in charge of investigating the investigators, his writ seems to always be to muddy the waters and undo what Mueller did, even though Mueller, of course, was severely crippled by his whole 
investigation being reframed by Barr himself. But so far, Durham hasn't come up with very much. He's got an indictment against a lawyer who worked for the, the law firm that the Clinton campaign hired in 2016. They've got him on, on the same charge that they've leveled against Igor Denchenko. So he was indicted today in federal court in Alexandria. So what what's going on here? Is this just Durham, you know, trying to justify the years of time that he's had to investigate the investigators and so far he's come up pretty empty? I, I've never been a fan of these investigations because they take on a life of their own and it, it, it does become like Captain Ahab chasing the whale. This may actually end up redounding again to Trump's benefit. He doesn't need more than a few slivers of of evidence or controversy to to puff it up into a uh, huge attack on himself and convince his followers that he ha- he was indeed victimized during during these investigations and and that the Democrats were engaged in a gigantic plot to undermine his campaign in 2016. Durham himself, you know, the most conspicuous thing about him seems to be his walrus mustache. I haven't seen anything significant yet emerge from his investigation, but he could actually turn this into a right-wing cause. You know, Victoria Newland was involved with this dossier so was Fiona Hill. You could easily see if the Republicans take the House that there could be a lot of investigations of this. Well, the, I think the, the reality is, first of all, apparently, Jake Sullivan and Podesta never ever handed the document over to Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so for what it was worth, the main client, if you will, and originally, of course, the dossier was prepared for Republicans who were alarmed at Trump and I can't remember which of the 16 or 17 Republican candidates originally commissioned Fusion GPS to do this dossier. But then when the Clintons picked it up, in fact, the lawyer that Durham has has charged is uh, worked for this law firm, That, but they never passed it on. But the point about the dossier itself is that I don't think Steele had much to do with it. I mean, I think he almost outsourced the whole thing to Igor Danchenko, uh, who just gathered a whole bunch of stuff, a lot of which seems to be kind of gossip. There is, in the indictment today, there was revelations about an American public relations person who basically is supposed to be key to this thing. And he's apparently, Danchenko lied to the FBI that he'd been in touch with this public relations person who is apparently a fairly prominent PR person for the Democrats and worked for the Clinton campaign and made a number of trips to Russia. So what do you make of all this? Is there, <laughs> is there there's some smoke there? I wonder if there's any fire. Well, well, we'll find out. I mean, it's obviously a huge mistake and a, I mean, a cardinal blunder to, to lie to the FBI. That's, you're just, you're not going to go unpunished for that. Um, where this heads, I don't know. My suspicion is that uh, Republicans will try and reinflate this as a as a gigantic, tremendous web that the Democrats tried to spin around Trump 
and to portray Trump as a martyr and a victim of the Clinton campaign. And the facts won't really matter that much. How much more Durham is is able to unearth? I mean, we just don't know. The story is obviously in its incipient stages. Well, we thought we'd learn something about it from the big exclusive that ABC News got, an interview with Christopher Steele, with George Stephanopoulos interviewing him. But, you know, it would put you to sleep. I mean, it was just sort of boring and passionless and technocratic and there was nothing to it. And my understanding is that not only did Steele outsource this whole thing to Danchenko, who did the legwork, and God knows what the quality of that was, He's made millions uh, as a consultant since. This, is, <laughs> this has been very good for him in his business as a uh, security consultant. Well, it certainly raised his profile, but he's wreaked a lot of havoc here in Washington, D.C. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Steele's performance I, with Stephanopoulos, I thought, was extraordinarily weak. He was really unable to defend any of his assertions and uh, did not cut, cut, a, cut a poor figure. So Trump's incredibly lucky then when it comes to this. I think he's as guilty as sin, and uh, there's an awful lot of material, particularly in the counterintelligence files, that I think would, could put him in an orange jumpsuit in a heartbeat. But he's been, you mentioned Roy Cohn earlier, this is a man who's been one step of a head of the sheriff all of his life, and he, he dodged a bullet with Mueller, thanks to uh, Barr in part and Mueller's poor performance in justifying his own work. So do you think, just in closing here, that uh, he's going to dodge another bullet in terms of the American public ever finding out about what the true ties are between Trump and Russia, Trump and the Soviet Union, and Trump and Putin? At the end of his career, Roy Cohn was disbarred and his law practice went up in flames. I think Trump is on the edge of a volcano and knows it. And it's so I don't I think he probably will get uh, at least his reputation will will suffer a dent. And we will eventually find out what happened in Russia. The other thing is that both the elections in Virginia, and New Jersey, both these candidates, these Republican candidates for governor did not, in fact, embrace Trump. I think it's clear for the Republican Party that Trump as a candidate for them would be a disaster. doesn't mean he won't run. But I think the, uh, that Trump himself is, is essentially a dead letter. But Trumpism is alive and virulent. Yeah, but will he end up in an orange jumpsuit? Orange, I don't know. <laughs> well, it matches uh, his skin <laughs> and his hair. <laughs> uh, the problem is that if you have enough money in America, it's pretty clear that uh, you can avoid the arm of the law successfully. And Trump still has enough assets and backers that I'm not sure that he's ever headed for the pokey. Okay. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Jacob Auburn. Thank you, Ian.
And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Harbron, who is the editor at The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for The Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at The New Republic. And his latest article at The National Interest is, Is Trump Light a Winning Formula for the GOP? And he has an article at The New York Times, The Inexorable Rise of Angela Merkel. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing criticism coming from Democratic strategists like James Carville, who blamed his party's losses in Virginia and weak performances in other state elections on stupid wokeness. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Farnsworth, Professor and Director at the Center for Leadership and Media Studies at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia, where his research and teaching focuses on mass media, the presidency, and Virginia politics. He's the author of a number of books, including Presidential Communication and Character, White House News Management from Clinton to Cable to Twitter, and Trump and Late Night with Trump, Political Humor and the American Presidency. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Farnsworth. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're there in Virginia, and there's been a lot of, there's kind of a political hangover, I guess, with the Democratic Party at the moment. Lots of recriminations, lots of hand-wringing going on. You've got the Democratic strategist James Carville saying that what went wrong is just stupid wokeness. Don't just look at Virginia and New Jersey. Look at Long Island, look at Buffalo, look at Minneapolis and even Seattle, Washington. I mean, this defund the police lunacy, this take Abraham Lincoln's name off schools. I mean that people see that. It's just really has a suppressive effect all across the country on Democrats. Some of the people need to go to a woke detox center or something. So he was on a bit of a tear there, Stephen. How are you reacting? Or what, what reactions are you hearing today in Virginia? Well, I mean, part of the, uh, the dynamic in Virginia is simply that the, the tide comes in and the tide goes out. Um, the Democrats in Virginia have had several election cycles that worked out really, really well for them, uh, in part because Trump was president and he was really unpopular and he really energized Democratic voters. But in this election cycle, I think we had a, uh, a series of factors that explained why this wasn't a particularly uh, good election for the Democrats. Um, I think that you know this was a tough time in terms of the Biden presidency, for example. Um, you look at the uh, moments of um, that we're in right now, you see high inflation, you see supply chain issues in terms of things in the stores, you see uh, continuing anxiety over COVID, you know, people thought it would be over by now. Um, now, these are not always Biden's fault, right? But uh, the reality is that when you're in charge, you're to, to, to blame, at least in the minds of a lot of voters. Uh, so there is that issue of it being a sort of a rough time for Democrats. Uh, the Republican narrative that Democrats can't govern. This is also an issue, of course, when Congress continues to dither within the Democratic Party over the Build Back Better bill and the BIF bill. Uh, those uh, bills languishing in Congress really help 
support the Republican narrative that Democrats can't govern. Uh, then there was also the issue of the McAuliffe campaign, which which really didn't do a good job of making the case for why one should vote for a Democrat. And so, you know, uh, James Carville is is coming out of a pretty centrist vision for the Democratic Party, and there's certainly um, a a dynamic in Virginia that favors centrist Democrats over more liberal ones. But the reality is that this was just a very tough environment for Democrats, and a bad situation was made worse by a, a candidate who. Um, didn't particularly uh, rise to the challenge on the Democratic side. Well, he certainly didn't do himself any favors when in the debate with uh, Youngkin, where he basically said that parents shouldn't have a say in the school curriculums. And clearly this idea of critical race theory took hold. Now, it obviously is a, it's basically a lie. It's a, taught in, <laughs> rarely in, law schools, and certainly not in, in any schools as far as I know, certainly not in Virginia, but it did work for Young King, and the Democrats failed to address the anxiety that uh, suburban mothers have, and, and you mentioned COVID. I mean, isn't it a perfect storm of anxiety, COVID, kids getting vaccinations, wearing masks, etc., and I did a recent interview with a pollster who said that if you ask people, particularly in Virginia, if if you should teach the good and bad in American history in schools, they would say yes. But if you ask them about critical race theory, you get a resounding no. So I don't understand, and you were, you're there in the state, Stephen, why McAuliffe didn't take on this issue and let it let himself get beaten up by it. Well, it's it's really not clear to me why McAuliffe didn't appreciate that this was a misstep. Um, and why, you know, it wasn't corrected more, more quickly. Um, in, a, in a debate that's an hour long, that was the sentence that launched a thousand attack ads. And the, the, the Yunkin campaign quite wisely recognized this as a gaffe, and they emphasized it throughout the campaign season. And McAuliffe really, I think, painted himself into a corner by not just saying, well, look, here's what I really meant. Here's the clarification. Because you know, that would have made this a two-day story or a three-day story, I think. If he had just simply said, what I mean is that this is a partnership and that, you know, educators are professionals and they're trained and they have uh, something to say about, you know, how kids can can do well. And then, you know, point to the successes of, of school in Virginia. Virginia has relatively high test scores compared to most states. We're above average. We're one of the top places in the South. Um, the area to which we often um, compare ourselves. And so when you look at those kinds of things, you could see ways in which McAuliffe could maybe have redirected the conversation. You know, there was a, you know, I think a, a, a an unforced error that was compounded by the choices they made in the days that followed. Uh, because in the end, you know, that really was, I think, the, uh, the key issue that created a, a crisis for the McAuliffe campaign that lasted throughout the uh, campaign season. And again, I'm speaking with Stephen Farnsworth, a professor and director of the Center for Leadership and Media Studies at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia, where his research and teaching focuses on mass media, the presidency, and Virginia politics. And he's the author of a number of books, including Presidential Communication and Character, White House News Management from Clinton and Cable to Twitter and Trump, and Late Night with Trump, Political Humor and the American Presidency. So... How's this all going to resonate now throughout the country and particularly coming in this uh, build up to 2022? 
The question yeah. would be then, can the Republicans run two campaigns simultaneously, one that appeals to the Trump voters and the Trump followers, uh, and one that appeals, a Yunkin-like campaign that appeals to suburban housewives? Well, I do think that that's going to be the plan for Republicans. There's already talk in Congress about some sort of parental bill of rights that Republicans can run on in the 2022 midterms. And so, you know, as a, as any child uh, parent knows, uh, the uh, rewarded behavior is repeated behavior. And and so the fact that the Youngkin campaign had such success with education means plenty of other politicians will be trying to employ it as well. Uh, but there is one thing to remember about Virginia, and it's kind of specific to Virginia, that may impact the ability of other campaigns to engage in a Yunkin-style campaign. Uh, Yunkin um, was fortunate in that the Republican Party of Virginia set up a nomination system that really disadvantaged the most pro-Trump Republicans. And so the Republicans who hadn't won a statewide election since 2009, so tired of losing, decided that the best way to move forward was with a candidate who didn't have a track record in politics. He didn't have to vote on the electors in uh, in Pennsylvania, didn't have to decide whether or not to impeach Trump like members of Congress had to do. They found really kind of a tabula rasa when it came to politics. He was, Youngkin was just a businessman, uh, not a political figure. So people could fill in the blanks about what kind of politician he might be in a way that, you know, sometimes tough for uh, other than first time candidates. But, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, that the daylight that Youngkin had, the ability to keep Trump at arm's length can be replicated in a lot of other states. Um, in many states in the country, the Republican state Republican organizations have been purging the non-Trump people and creating a very pro-Trump Republican Party in the various states around the country. And so, you know, they may insist that their nominees are going to be full-throated endorsers of Trump. They may not be willing to accept the, the Yunkin style, which was to keep Trump at arm's length. Trump never appeared in Virginia in person. The campaign rallies that he did were virtual rallies. He called in. And the reality was that Yunkin wasn't even around when those things happened. So there was a clear effort to separate Yunkin from Trump. And that's smart politics, particularly in Virginia. But I don't know that Republican parties around the state, around the country are going to be quite so indulgent. Not all of them were so frustrated with, uh, with the track record of recent years that they were willing to go to such steps to make sure that a, uh, a Trump-lite Republican would end up being the nominee. But I thought, Stephen, that the Democrats, as an issue, owned education. I mean, I know George W. Bush tried to make education a centerpiece, but still, the impression I've had over the years is that the Democrats own education, and, and now could the Republicans end up owning education? Well, I don't know that this is a this is a long term advantage. I think that in this particular moment, the uh, the polls showed that education basically was an asset about equally to Democrats and Republicans. And as as you know, that's very unusual. American public opinion routinely gives Democrats double digit advantages when it comes to the party best able to handle education. But you know, we're talking about a moment of extraordinary frustration in the United States right now. Um, and the idea of parental con control over schools or parental involvement in schools is somewhat of a, of, a, of a basket where you could 
put all kinds of things into it relating to education. So if you're frustrated about your local school district because of the mask policies, you can support Yunkin. Or if you're frustrated over uh, COVID vaccination for employees, you can support Yunkin. If you're mad about critical race theory, then you know Yunkin's your guy. If you are unhappy with respect to how long the kids were in the house learning uh, remotely, uh, well, then you know you can take out your frustrations by voting for Yunkin. So there are all these different education-related issues that Yunkin was able to sort of bring together in this narrative about greater local control, greater uh, parental control over schools. And and so that worked out really, really well for him. But I don't think it would have worked as well if McAuliffe had been quicker to respond or, you know, had been quicker to basically clarify what he really meant. If those kinds of things had happened earlier, um, it wouldn't have been this sort of magic bullet that it was for the Yunkin campaign. So in terms of how the Democrats proceed, obviously they're, in fact, on today, Thursday, Nancy Pelosi's hoping that they'll vote, the House will vote on both infrastructure packages, the bipartisan one and the budget reconciliation one. Whether that will happen or not, we don't know. But Manchin is more or less saying that we're going too fast and he could drag out the agony as Biden twists in the wind. There's an interesting some interesting coverage lately on David Shaw, who's a data scientist that works for the Democrats. He originally was fired by them and then rehired under Obama. And he's basically saying that they've got a very, very small window to succeed. Otherwise, they'll be in the wilderness for decades. And just to quote from what he's saying, the Democrats are on the precipice of an era without any hope of a governing majority. The coming year, while they still control the House, the Senate, and the White House, is their last best chance to alter course to pass a package of democracy reforms, making voting fairer and easier, to offer statehood to Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., to overhaul how the party talks and acts and thinks to win back the working class voters, white and non-white, who have left behind, who, who have abandoned the party. And if they fail, they will not get another chance, not anytime soon. So that's just a quote from uh, an interview that uh, David Shaw did with Ezra Klein. So do you share that opinion, Stephen, that uh, Democrats are literally on a precipice here between failure that could have repercussions lasting for decades? Right. This is a very bleak time for Democrats because of the uh, the prospects of this 2022 midterm. Uh, presidents usually see their party lose seats in the midterms in Congress. Um, and sometimes when it's a Democratic president, that number could be 40 or 50 or more seats. And so that's that's bad news to start with. You also have redistricting, which is being conducted in the individual states. And, um, you know, there are significant redesigns in the wake of the census that are going to create opportunities for Republicans to pick up seats in Texas in Ohio, in uh, in some other states where Republicans are in the majority, and th- that's going to also create more pressure on uh, on Democrats in terms of their struggle to keep the majority. It's quite striking, really, how how you know this uh, series of uh, of circumstances are are out there in ways that are unfavorable for Democrats. Now, some of these things they they really can't change, but some of them they can, and you know, above all, maybe. Uh, more important for the Democrats' political future than either of the bills that are being discussed right now with respect to the budget is the central question of voting rights. 
You know, if you make it harder for people to vote in your state, if you engage in voter suppression in a variety of different ways, as it's being done by limiting the days for early voting or limiting polling locations, and you need to start doing those sorts of things in your individual states, and you're making it harder for people to vote. And by the way, these policies are often directed most powerfully against urban constituencies who have to wait longer to vote because there are fewer locations for polling. Uh, if you live in rural areas, you know, you might still be able to get in and out pretty quickly when you're casting a ballot. Um, and so, you know, it's really this question of voting rights. And that, you know, that I think is sort of the key to the democratic future, because it's clear, particularly in the wake of the 2020 election and the effort to try to overturn the will of the voters in uh, in in Congress and elsewhere, uh, that the Republican Party represents at least some of these elected officials a, um, a threat to the free exercise of the ballot in, uh, in individual states. Um, and some of the principled Republicans who stood up to the baseless claims that the election was being stolen, uh, well, they not, may not be in office much longer, um, particularly if you're looking at secretaries of state in some of those close states like uh, Georgia or Arizona or Pennsylvania, Republicans are trying to figure out ways to um, set up the political authorities in their states so that they can maximize the chances that the electoral votes go to the Republicans, even if the voters thought otherwise. Well, that's we're heading to a one-party state. Uh, just in closing, I mean, uh, democracy, American democracy itself is at stake. In the, in the last minute here, could the Democrats make that case? Will that resonate? Well, I really do think that uh, that they need to make that case. I think that the the real key question uh, is whether or not people can 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 vote and they can do it easily, they can do it effectively, and uh, and so it's really important for Democrats in Congress to establish greater federal standards for protecting the rights of all Americans to be able to vote and to be able to vote in a way that is not particularly onerous. It's um, it used to be a bipartisan thing, but since Donald Trump has really man tried to manipulate the system to make sure that Republicans uh, will win one way or another, uh, it has become a really dangerous moment for democracy. And I'm, my, my fear going into 2024 is that those principled uh, public servants, including you know, many Republicans elected to be secretaries of state and other authorities, won't be uh, in place to make sure that the count is honest and legitimate next time. Well, Stephen Farnsworth, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Farnsworth, a professor and director of the Center for Leadership and Media Studies at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia, where his research and teaching focuses on the mass media, the presidency, and Virginia politics. And he's the author of a number of books, including Presidential Communication and Character, White House News Management from Clinton and Cable to Twitter and Trump, and Late Night with Trump, Political Humor and the American Presidency. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the Federal Election Commission's decision not to prevent foreign money from intervening in state ballot initiatives and referendums.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Ben Freeman, the director and founder of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy, where he works to expose how foreign governments are influencing U.S. public policy and elections. Previously, the National Security Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the Foreign Influence Database. He's the author of The Foreign Policy Auction. Welcome to Background Briefing. Dr. Ben Freeman. Thank you so much, Ian. It's great to be back. Well, Ben, I thought of you when I read this extraordinary story in the Washington Post, foreign nationals can finance ballot initiatives, the FEC, Federal Election Commission, affirms. The Federal Election Commission is saying it's okay. In a four to two vote in July, they dismissed a complaint against a Canadian subsidiary of an Australian mining company that helped finance efforts to defeat a 2018 Montana ballot measure that would have beefed up environmental protection. So this is extraordinary that foreign companies and foreigners can basically pay for the propaganda that wins over these important referendum votes that you have in various states. And here in California, of course, Basically, ballot initiatives are what runs the state. The the legislature doesn't do a lot. So they can get involved and finance these important uh, ballot initiatives across the country. How could that be possible? Yeah, Ian, I, I I think your your surprise and your outrage is is completely justified because th- this was a very surprising decision from the the FEC and uh, and surprising because it does all the things you said. Um, it, it, in many ways, a a ballot initiative or a ballot referendum is the most direct form of democracy that we have here in the U.S. It's it's one of the few opportunities. Where, where U.S. voters have the opportunity uh, to directly vote up or down on, on important issues for the government. Um, you know, many other elections, we just elect representatives who may or may not uh, ultimately vote the way that, that we would like them to. Um, and so that's why it was particularly troubling that the FEC were to allow this. And, and basically what the FEC's decision said here is that these ballot initiatives w- were not what they considered to be, quote, uh, elections under existing federal law. And therefore, this uh, prohibition that the FEC has on foreign, foreign donations in U.S. elections doesn't actually apply here. And frankly, it was a very curious uh, re- Reading of the law, as I read, um, as I read and I've written about uh, previous Supreme Court decisions on this, I don't see how they came to this determination. And one of my hopes for this is that if if this decision does go all the way to the Supreme Court, I think the Supreme Court would then make it very clear that this is actually, in fact, uh, not allowed under U.S. law. This Supreme Court, are you confident about that, Ben? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a fair point. But before I talk to you, Ian, I, I was actually reviewing an old case that I had written on. It was a, it, it was a case called Blumen et al. Um, challenged the FEC. And the case was about foreign national, uh, Mr. Blumen. Uh, he was a foreign national who wanted to participate in U.S. elections. This is shortly after Citizens United. And uh, he, he, and, he and his co-partners in the, uh, in the lawsuit, they 
well, all four nationals wanted to participate in U.S. elections. The case rose all the way up to the Supreme Court. But before it got there, it went through a circuit court run by one Brett Kavanaugh. And he very forcefully uh, shot down the, their, their request to be able to participate in U.S. elections. Uh, for amongst other reasons that he said that this is uh, this is an inherent part of the democratic process and that we don't uh, we protect democratic processes all the way down to not allowing foreign nationals to be police officers, probation officers, that sort of thing. Um, and so this participation by foreign nationals in elections was clearly within the bounds and the protections of the Constitution. Well, let me add to that. You recall when Citizens United passed very shortly thereafter in a State of the Union address, President Obama mentioned what a disastrous opinion it is and how it could have such a detrimental effect on our politics, which it clearly has. And then he went on to say that in foreign money could pour into our elections, at which point the representative of the Supreme Court sitting there in the Congress was Samuel Alito, and he was seen on television mouthing, not true. Well, it is true. Right, right. I, I, yeah, I, I think uh, President Obama's uh, concern has been un- undeniably validated uh, that Citizens United would, would, would make it so much easier for foreign money to pour into elections. I mean, with Citizens United, you get so much of, of what we and our, our, our DC think tank world called dark money, um, and, and it's untraceable in many cases. We we don't know where the money is coming from. In some cases, we don't know where the money is going. Um, and and the, the less transparency you have with money in U.S. elections, the easier it does become for foreign nationals to uh, to, to sneak money into U.S. elections. And we've seen this from a number of countries. Um, the, the the UAE has done it, for example. China has done it, for example. You, you, you sort of pick your boogeyman out there um, from, from a foreign government, and chances are they have exploited Citizens United to funnel money into U.S. elections and U.S. politics. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Ben Freeman, the director and founder of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy, where he works to expose how foreign governments are influencing U.S. public policy and elections previously the National Security Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the Foreign Influence Database. He's the author of The Foreign Policy Auction. So let's discuss another story involving foreign money and foreign agents involved in our politics, and that is the Foreign Agents Registration Modernization Act, FARM, which is a bill sponsored by Senators Sheldon Whitehouse and Cynthia Loomis and Representative Ro Khanna and Ken Buck. So it's a bipartisan bill that aims at overhauling the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA, and standardizing an electronic database for foreign agent information, making that information dramatically more accessible to the public, and implementing digital accessibility standards, making the information available to people with visual impairments. So that's something that's just happened today, as a matter of fact. So what do you make, make of that? Um, Ian, I, I, I will confess with you uh, that I love it. And my, my bias is that this was a recommendation that I had made years ago. Uh, and, and, and fortunately, had the, uh, had the opportunity to have some very good conversations with Ken Buck's office and, and Ro Khanna's office about this. 
um, a, a few years back, and they have done just, just wonderful work to push this forward and, and, and see the value in it. And I really think the reason that, that, that we all see how important this is, is, is because a lot of the work that we do at the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative is to, to try and inform people and educate people about what, what I call the foreign influence industry. Um, and this is a half billion dollar industry every year whose sole purpose is to bend uh, U.S. foreign policy and in some cases U.S. domestic policy uh, to the will of foreign powers. Um, and in many cases, the, the, the biggest spenders on, uh, on this foreign influence are authoritarian regimes, um, uh, re- regimes that are decidedly not democratic, have human rights abuses, and also get the U.S. to engage in some risky militarized adventures, like supporting the war in Yemen, for example. And so what we wanted to do with, with this bill uh, was, in a sense, make it easier for, for the public and for anybody out there, journalists, uh, you, you know, media, wh- whoever you are, if you're concerned about foreign influence in the U.S. political process, we want to make it as easy as possible for you to get the information that, that you need to know and you should know about what foreign powers are doing to, to influence the U.S. political process. And so what this bill does, it makes all of that so much easier. Right now, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, the website, is incredibly clunky. It's hard to navigate. It's hard to find the information that you might be interested in. It's especially hard to find information about your particular uh, congressman or your particular senator. You know, if you wanted to know, for example, how many times are they meeting with a lobbyist from, say, Saudi Arabia? What are they talking about with them? It'd be very hard for you to find that information right now. Now, uh, the, the organization that I run, we, we try to provide that information, uh, but we want to make it so you, you don't have to be somebody like me. You don't have to be uh, you know, a D.C. Uh, policy nerd to get that information. This bill would make it so uh, really everybody in the public would have the opportunity to see exactly what's going on and exactly how their members of Congress, their representatives are being influenced by foreign powers. Well, as a journalist, I'd be particularly interested in the money that's coming from Saudi Arabia that will be going to Republicans because there's no question that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince there, he's doing everything he can to hurt Biden's presidency because the mm-hmm. the rising gas prices uh, due to the fact that Saudi Arabia for the first time is no longer helping the United States by pumping oil to lower the cost of gasoline at the pump and this is this sort of standoff and Biden even mentioned it at his recent town hall on CNN <laughs> he didn't even go into details right. but it's clearly going on that a foreign government is affecting US domestic politics and we've seen how Biden's numbers are dropping and poll numbers are dropping and one of them of course is about the price of gas Right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, your, your, your concern there, Ian, uh, it's, it's frankly, it's completely valid. We've seen this before with, with the Saudis, um, the, the Emiratis uh, in, in other countries that, who will systematically work um, to undermine wh- whichever party is, is not bending to their will. It doesn't necessarily have to be the Democrats or the Republicans. And we, you know, we certainly see what, what, what you're saying in this case with them, uh, you know, going after a Democratic president. But regardless, 
they they will use their lobbyists, they will use their influence um, to vilify those who oppose them and to prop up those who support them. And we can see a lot of this happening in the FARA filings, but because all of this has been so opaque, it's hard for journalists to find this information. Um, frankly, you, you and I, Ian, have had some great conversations about this before, um, but I'd frankly, a little bit about this is that, you know, I'd love to I'd love to put myself out of business a little bit. I'd love it. I'd love it if there was just an easy way um, for, for you and, and my fellow friends in the media to just be able to go to one location to look up the information they need uh, and do it quickly and easily to find out exactly what the Saudis and, and whoever else is up to in Washington. Right. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, then, uh, Ben, let's talk about. The other aspect of, we talked about foreign money in our politics and the outrageous fact that the Federal Election Commission is now letting stand that foreign companies can finance ballot initiatives in the country. That's pretty appalling. But when we've covered the foreign influence in terms of buying our government and buying our government's policies. But what about the other aspect, which is propaganda? And a lot of that's, of course, associated to Russia's efforts to get Trump elected in 2016 and their continuing uh, propaganda efforts, you know, against the vaccines and all kinds of pernicious stuff that goes on a daily basis. Is there anything in the new Farm Act that would address that? No, no, unfortunately, not in the Farm Act. Uh, but but I will say that the, the Federal Communication Commission has um, re- recently uh, it enacted some new regulations that that would help a bit with that. Uh, years ago, I worked with a couple of congressional offices on some legislation that would have provided greater transparency to foreign governments, television and, and radio advertisements, programming that they were paying for um, with the specific idea that about Russia and their influence in the 2016 election. And it took the F- FCC a few years, but Finally, just earlier this year, they they passed new regulations saying that foreign government-sponsored programming on on TV or radio would have to declare that it was being uh, sponsored and paid for by a foreign government. Now, the, the, to be clear, this doesn't bar any of the speech from from a foreign government. You you, you know they can the, the the programs can run just the way they've always been running. But what we're hoping to get from this is better transparency about. Who exactly is paying for that TV radio program that you're listening to? Um, what we want to do, I, I, I very much want to extend this to social media better. And frankly, the the social media companies from Facebook to Twitter, Instagram, you, you go on down the line, um, have really not been good about this. And it, it, it's still, to me, social media advertising and social media content is still the wild, wild west when it comes to foreign influence. And foreign powers have seemingly unlimited ability to influence conversations on social media and even conversations directly about elections. So I I hate to end on a depressing note there, but I still think uh, that there's a lot of work that needs to be done on social media regarding foreign influence in U.S. democracy. Well, Dr. Ben Freeman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. Great to be back. 
And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Ben Freeman, the director and founder of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy, where he works to expose how foreign governments are influencing U.S. public policy and elections. Previously, the National Security Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the Foreign Influence Database. He's the author of The Foreign Policy Auction. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.